0: Chapter Two, Part Six of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume Two. Chapter 2 The Witch Mania, Part 6. When such doctrines as these were openly promulgated by the highest authority in the realm, and who, in promulgating them, flattered but did not force the public opinion, it is not surprising that the sad delusion should have increased and multiplied until the race of wizards and witches replenished the earth the reputation which he lost by being afraid of a naked sword he more than regained by his courage in combating the devil the kirk showed itself a most zealous coadjutor, especially during those halcyon days when it was not at issue with the king upon other matters of doctrine and prerogative on his accession to the throne of england in 1603 james came amongst a people who had heard with admiration of his glorious deeds against the witches he himself left no part of his ancient prejudices behind him and his advent was the signal for the persecution to burst forth in england with a fury equal to that in scotland it had languished a little during the latter years of the reign of elizabeth but the very first parliament of king james brought forward the subject james was flattered by their promptitude and the act passed in sixteen o four on the second reading in the house of lords the bill passed into a committee in which were twelve bishops by it was enacted that if any person shall use practice or exercise any conjuration of any wicked or evil spirit or shall consult covenant with or feed any such spirit the first offence to be imprisonment for a year and standing in the pillory once a quarter the second offence to be death the minor punishment seems but rarely to have been inflicted every record that has been preserved mentions that the witches were hanged and burned or burned without the previous strangling alive and quick during the whole of james's reign amid the civil wars of his successor the sway of the long parliament the usurpation of cromwell and the reign of charles the second there was no abatement of the persecution if at any time it raged with less virulence it was when cromwell and the independents were masters dr zachary gray the editor of an edition of hudibras informs us in a note to that work that he himself perused a list of 3,000 witches, who were executed in the time of the long Parliament alone. During the first 80 years of the 17th century, the number executed has been estimated at 500 annually, making the frightful total of 40,000. Some of these cases deserve to be cited. The great majority resemble closely those already mentioned, but two or three of them let in a new light upon the popular superstition everyone has heard of the lancashire witches a phrase now used to compliment the ladies of that county for their bewitching beauty but it is not everyone who has heard the story in which it originated a villainous boy named robinson was the chief actor in the tragedy he confessed many years afterwards he had been suborned by his father and other persons to give false evidence against the unhappy witches whom he brought to the stake the time of this famous trial was about the year sixteen thirty four this boy robinson whose father was a woodcutter residing on the borders of pendle forest in lancashire spread abroad many rumors against one mother dickinson whom he accused of being a witch these rumors coming to the ears of the local magistracy the boy was sent for and strictly examined he told the following extraordinary story without hesitation or prevarication and apparently in so open and honest a manner that no one who heard him doubted the truth of it he said that as he was roaming about in one of the glades of the forest amusing himself by gathering blackberries he saw two greyhounds before him which he thought at the time belonged to some gentlemen of the neighbourhood. Being fond of sport, he proposed to have a course, and, a hare being started, he incited the hounds to run. Neither of them would stir. Angry at the beasts, he seized hold of a switch, with which he was about to punish them, when one of them suddenly started up in the form of a woman, and the other of a little boy he at once recognized the woman to be the witch mother dickinson she offered him some money to induce him to sell his soul to the devil but he refused upon this she took a bridle out of her pocket and shaking it over the head of the other little boy he was instantly turned into a horse mother dickinson then seized him in her arms sprang upon the horse and placing him before her rode with the swiftness of the wind over forests fields bogs and rivers until they came to a large barn the witch alighted at the door and taking him by the hand led him inside there he saw seven old women pulling at seven halters which hung from the roof as they pulled large pieces of meat lumps of butter loaves of bread basins of milk hot puddings black puddings and other rural dainties fell from the halters on to the floor while engaged in this charm they made such ugly faces and looked so fiendish that he was quite frightened after they had pulled in this manner enough for an ample feast they set to and showed whatever might be said of the way in which their supper was procured that their epicurism was a little more refined than that of the scottish witches who according to Gelly duncan's confession feasted upon dead men's flesh in the old kirk of berwick the boy added that as soon as supper was ready many other witches came to partake of it several of whom he named in consequence of this story many persons were arrested and the boy Robinson was led about from church to church in order that he might point out to the officers by whom he was accompanied the hags he had seen in the barn. Altogether, about twenty persons were thrown into prison. Eight of them were condemned to die, including Mother Dickinson, upon this evidence alone, and executed accordingly. Among the wretches who concocted this notable story not one was ever brought to justice for his perjury and robinson the father gained considerable sums by threatening persons who were rich enough to buy off exposure among the ill weeds which flourished amid the long dissensions of the civil war matthew hopkins the witchfinder, stands eminent in his sphere this vulgar fellow resided in the year sixteen forty four at the town of manning tree in essex and made himself very conspicuous in discovering the devil's marks upon several unhappy witches the credit he gained by his skill in this instance seems to have inspired him to renewed exertions in the course of a very short time whenever a witch was spoken of in essex matthew hopkins was sure to be present aiding the judges with his knowledge of such cattle as he called them As his reputation increased, he assumed the title of Witchfinder General, and travelled through the counties of Norfolk, Essex, Huntingdon, and Sussex, for the sole purpose of finding out witches. In one year, he brought sixty poor creatures to the stake. The test he commonly adopted was that of swimming, so highly recommended by King James in his Demonology. The hands and feet of the suspected persons were tied together crosswise the thumb of the right hand to the toe of the left foot and vice versa they were then wrapped up in a large sheet or blanket and laid upon their backs in a pond or river if they sank their friends and relatives had the poor consolation of knowing they were innocent but there was an end of them if they floated which when laid carefully on the water was generally the case there was also an end of them for they were deemed guilty of witchcraft and burned accordingly another test was to make them repeat the lord's prayer and creed it was affirmed that no witch could do so correctly if she missed a word or even pronounced one incoherently which in her trepidation it was most probable she would she was accounted guilty it was thought that witches could not weep more than three tears and those only from the left eye thus the conscious innocence of many persons which gave them fortitude to bear unmerited torture without flinching was construed by their unmerciful tormentors into proofs of guilt in some districts the test resorted to was to weigh the culprit against the church Bible. If the suspected witch proved heavier than the Bible, she was set at liberty. This mode was far too humane for the witch-finders by profession. Hopkins always maintained that the most legitimate modes were pricking and swimming. Hopkins used to travel through his counties like a man of consideration, attended by his two assistants always putting up at the chief inn of the place and always at the cost of the authorities his charges were twenty shillings a town his expenses of living while there and his carriage thither and back this he claimed whether he found witches or not if he found any he claimed twenty shillings a head in addition when they were brought to execution for about three years he carried on this infamous trade success making him so insolent and rapacious that high and low became his enemies the reverend mr gall a clergyman of houghton in huntingtonshire wrote a pamphlet impugning his pretensions and accusing him of being a common nuisance hopkins replied in an angry letter to the functionaries of houghton stating his intention to visit their town but desiring to know whether it afforded many such sticklers for witchcraft as mr gall and whether they were willing to receive and entertain him with the customary hospitality if he so far honoured them he added by way of threat that in case he did not receive a satisfactory reply quote, he would waive their shire altogether and betake himself to such places where he might do and punish not only without control but with thanks and recompense end quote the authorities of houghton were not much alarmed at this awful threat of letting them alone they very wisely took no notice either of him or his letter mr gall describes in his pamphlet one of the modes employed by hopkins which was sure to swell his revenues very considerably it was a proof even more atrocious than the swimming he says that the witch finder general used to take the suspected witch and place her in the middle of a room upon a stool or table cross-legged or in some other uneasy posture if she refused to sit in this manner she was bound with strong cords hopkins then placed persons to watch her for four and twenty hours during which time she was to be kept without meat or drink it was supposed that one of her imps would come during that interval and suck her blood as the imp might come in the shape of a wasp a moth a fly or other insect a hole was made in the door or window to let it enter the watchers were ordered to keep a sharp lookout and endeavour to kill any insect that appeared in the room if any fly escaped and they could not kill it the woman was guilty the fly was her imp and she was sentenced to be burned and twenty shillings went into the pockets of master hopkins in this manner he made one old woman confess because four flies had appeared in the room that she was attended by four imps named illimazar pie Wacket, peck peck-in-the-crown and grizzle-gredegut Greedigut. is consoling to think that this impostor perished in his own snare mr gall's exposure and his own rapacity weakened his influence among the magistrates and the populace who began to find that not even the most virtuous and innocent were secure from his persecution looked upon him with undisguised aversion he was beset by a mob at a village in suffolk and accused of being himself a wizard an old reproach was brought against him that he had by means of sorcery cheated the devil out of a certain memorandum-book in which he satan had entered the names of all the witches in england thus said the populace you find out witches not by god's aid but by the devils in vain he denied his guilt the populace longed to put him to his own test he was speedily stripped and his thumbs and toes tied together he was then placed in a blanket and cast into a pond some say that he floated and that he was taken out tried and executed upon no other proof of his guilt others assert that he was drowned this much is positive that there was an end of him as no judicial entry of his trial and execution is to be found in any register it appears most probable that he expired by the hands of the mob butler has immortalized this scamp in the following lines of his hudibras hath not this present parliament a leisure to the devil sent, fully empowered to treat about, finding revolted witches out? And has he not within a year hanged three score of them in one shear? Some only for not being drowned, and some for sitting above ground, whole days and nights upon their breeches, and feeling pain were hanged for witches, and some for putting knavish tricks upon green geese or turkey chicks or pigs that suddenly deceased of griefs unnatural as he guessed who proved himself at length a witch and made a rod for his own breach in scotland also which finding became a trade they were known under the designation of common prickers and like hopkins received a fee for each witch they discovered at the trial of janet peaseton in sixteen forty six the magistrates of dalkeith caused John Kincaid of Trannant, the common pricker, to exercise his craft upon her. He found two marks of the devil's making, for she could not feel the pin when it was put into either of the said marks, nor did the marks bleed when the pin was taken out again. When she was asked where she thought the pins were put in her, she pointed to a part of her body distant from the real place. They were pins of three inches in length, End quote. These common prickers became at last so numerous that they were considered nuisances. The judges refused to take their evidence, and in 1678 the Privy Council of Scotland condescended to hear the complaint of an honest woman who had been indecently exposed by one of them and expressed their opinion that common prickers were common cheats. But such an opinion was not formed in high places before hundreds of innocent persons had fallen victims the parliaments had encouraged the delusion both in england and scotland and by arming these fellows with a sort of authority had in a manner forced the magistrates and ministers to receive their evidence the fate of one poor old gentleman who fell a victim to the arts of hopkins in sixteen forty six deserves to be recorded mr lewis a venerable clergyman upwards of seventy years of age and who had been rector of framlingham in suffolk for fifty years excited suspicion that he was a wizard being a violent royalist he was likely to meet with no sympathy at that time and even his own parishioners whom he had served so long and so faithfully turned their backs upon him as soon as he was accused placed under the hands of hopkins who knew so well how to bring the refractory to confession the old man the light of whose intellect had become somewhat dimmed from age confessed that he was a wizard he said he had two imps that continually excited him to do evil and that one day when he was walking on the sea-coast one of them prompted him to express a wish that a ship whose sails were just visible in the distance might sink he consented, and saw the vessel sink before his eyes. He was, upon this confession, tried and condemned. On his trial, the flame of reason burned up as brightly as ever. He denied all that had been alleged against him, and cross-examined Hopkins with great tact and severity. After his condemnation, he begged that the funeral service of the church might be read for him, the request was refused and he repeated it for himself from memory as he was led to the scaffold a poor woman in scotland was executed upon evidence even less strong than this john bain a common pricker swore that as he passed her door he heard her talking to the devil she said in defence that it was a foolish practice she had of talking to herself and several of her neighbors corroborated her statement, but the evidence of the pricker was received. He swore that none ever talked to themselves who were not witches. The devil's mark being found upon her, the additional testimony of her guilt was deemed conclusive, and she was, quote, Convict and burnt, end quote. From the year 1652 to 1682, these trials diminished annually in number and acquittals were by no means so rare as they had been to doubt in witchcraft was no longer dangerous before country justices condemnations on the most absurd evidence still continued but when the judges of the land had to charge the jury they took a more humane and philosophical view by degrees the educated classes, comprised in those days within very narrow limits, openly expressed their unbelief of modern witchcraft, although they were not bold enough to deny its existence altogether. Between them and the believers in the old doctrine, fierce arguments ensued, and the skeptics were designated seduces. To convince them, the learned and reverend Joseph Glanville wrote his well-known work, SADDUCISMUS TRIUMPHATUS, and THE COLLECTION OF RELATIONS. THE FIRST PART INTENDED AS A PHILOSOPHICAL INQUIRY INTO WITCHCRAFT, AND THE POWER OF THE DEVIL, quote, TO ASSUME A MORTAL SHAPE, end QUOTE, THE LATTER CONTAINING WHAT HE CONSIDERED A MULTITUDE OF WELL-AUTHENTICATED MODERN INSTANCES. SIR MATTHEW Hale. BUT THOUGH PROGRESS WAS MADE, IT WAS SLOW in sixteen sixty four the venerable sir matthew hale condemned two women named amy duny and rose cullender to the stake at st edmundsbury upon evidence the most ridiculous these two old women whose ugliness gave their neighbours the first idea that they were witches went to a shop to purchase herrings and were refused indignant at the prejudice against them they were not sparing of their abuse shortly afterward the daughter of the herring dealer fell sick and a cry was raised that she was bewitched by the old women who had been refused the herrings this girl was subject to epileptic fits to discover the guilt of amy Dooney and rose cullender the girl's eyes were blinded closely with a shawl and the witches were commanded to touch her they did so and she was immediately seized with a fit upon this evidence they were sent to prison the girl was afterwards touched by an indifferent person and the force of her imagination was so great that thinking it was again the witches she fell down in a violent fit as before this however was not received in favour of the accused the following extract from the published reports of the trial will show the sort of evidence which was received samuel pacey of Laistoff, a good sober man being sworn said that on thursday the tenth of october last his younger daughter deborah about nine years old was suddenly taken so lame that she could not stand on her legs and so continued till the seventeenth of the same month when the child desired to be carried to a bank on the east side of the house looking towards the sea and while she was sitting there Amy Dooney came to this examinant's house to buy some herrings, but was denied. Then she came twice more, but, being as often denied, she went away discontented and grumbling. At this instant of time, the child was taken with terrible fits, complaining of a pain in her stomach, as if she was pricked with pins, shrieking out with a voice like a whelp, and thus continued till the thirtieth of the same month this examinant further saith that amy Dooney, having long had the reputation of a witch and his child having in the intervals of her fits constantly cried out on her as the cause of her disorder saying that the said amy did appear to her and fright her he himself did suspect the said amy to be a witch and charged her with being the cause of his child's illness and set her in the stocks two days after his daughter elizabeth was taken with such strange fits that they could not force open her mouth without a tap and the younger child being in the same condition they used to her the same remedy both children grievously complained that amy dooney and another woman whose habit and looks they described did appear to them and torment them and would cry out there stands amy dooney there stands Rose Cullender, the other person who afflicted them. Their fits were not alike. Sometimes they were lame on the right side, sometimes on the left, and sometimes so sore that they could not bear to be touched. Sometimes they were perfectly well in other respects, but they could not hear. At other times they could not see. Sometimes they lost their speech for one, two and once for eight days together at times they had swooning fits and when they could speak were taken with a fit of coughing and vomited phlegm and crooked pins and once a great twopenny nail with above forty pins which nail he the examined saw vomited up with many of the pins the nail and pins were produced in the court thus the children continued for two months during which time The examinant often made them read in the new testament and observed when they came to the words lord jesus or christ they could not pronounce them but fell into a fit when they came to the words satan or devil they would point and say this bites but makes me speak right well finding his children thus tormented without hopes of recovery he sent them to his sister margaret arnold at yarmouth being willing to try whether change of air would help them. Margaret Arnold was the next witness. Being sworn, she said that about the 30th of November, Elizabeth and Deborah Pacey came to her house with her brother, who told her what had happened, and that he thought his children bewitched. She, this examinant, did not much regard it, supposing the children had played tricks and put the pins into their mouths themselves. She therefore took all the pins from their clothes, sewing them with thread instead of pinning them but notwithstanding they raised at times at least thirty pins in her presence and had terrible fits in which fits they would cry out upon amy duny and rose Cullender, saying that they saw them and heard them threatening as before that they saw things like mice running about the house and one of them catched one and threw it into the fire which made a noise like a rat another time the younger child being out of doors a thing like a bee would have forced itself into her mouth at which the child ran screaming into the house and before this examinant could come at her fell into a fit and vomited a two-penny nail with a broad head after that this examinant asked the child how she came by this nail when she answered the bee brought the nail and forced it into my mouth at other times the eldest child told this examinant that she saw flies bring her crooked pins she would then fall into a fit and vomit such pins one time the said child said she saw a mouse and crept under the table to look for it and afterwards the child seemed to put something into her apron saying she had caught it she then ran to the fire and threw it in on which there did appear to this examinant something like a flash of gunpowder although she does own she saw nothing in the child's hand once the child being speechless but otherwise very sensible ran up and down the house crying hush hush as if she had seen poultry but this examinant saw nothing at last the child catched at something and threw it into the fire Afterwards, when the child could speak, this examinant asked her what she saw at the time. She answered that she saw a duck. Another time the youngest child said, after a fit, that Amy Dooney had been with her and tempted her to drown herself or cut her throat or otherwise destroy herself. Another time they both cried out upon Amy Dooney and Rose Cullander, saying, Why don't you come yourselves? why do you send your imps to torment us sir thomas brown the celebrated sir thomas brown the author of vulgar errors was also examined as a witness upon the trial being desired to give his opinion of the three persons in court he said he was clearly of opinion that they were bewitched he said there had lately been a discovery of witches in denmark who used the same way of tormenting persons by conveying crooked pins needles and nails into their bodies that he thought in such cases the devil acted upon human bodies by natural means namely by exciting and stirring up the superabundant humors he did afflict them in a more surprising manner by the same diseases their bodies were usually subject to that these fits might be natural only raised to a great degree by the subtlety of the devil, cooperating with the malice of these witches. The evidence being concluded, Sir Matthew Hale addressed the jury. He said he would waive repeating the evidence to prevent any mistake, and told the jury there were two things they had to inquire into first, whether or not these children were bewitched, secondly, whether these women did bewitch them he said he did not in the least doubt there were witches first because the scriptures affirmed it secondly because the wisdom of all nations particularly our own had provided laws against witchcraft which implied their belief of such a crime he desired them strictly to observe the evidence and begged of god to direct their hearts in the weighty concern they had in hand since to condemn the innocent and let the guilty go free are both an abomination to the lord the jury then retired and in about half an hour returned a verdict of guilty upon all the indictments being thirteen in number the next morning the children came with their father to the lodgings of sir matthew hale very well and quite restored to their usual health mr pacey being asked at what time their health began to improve Replied that they were quite well in half an hour after the conviction of the prisoners. Many attempts were made to induce the unfortunate women to confess their guilt, but in vain, and they were both hanged. End of chapter 2, part 6. Recording by Linda Johnson.